Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Yeh and... Mayu, what's going on, everybody? Austin, back to you, man. What's new? What's new with me? Um, I don't know. What is new with me? So I guess it's new with both of us. We're selling... I think we mentioned it before. We sold off a couple properties. Three of four of them have closed. Mm. One of them... It's closing on April 4th. So I'm going in and signing the documents there. We sold it actually at a pretty good time compared to what the market is now. Not saying that the market's bad, but we sold it closer to the peak of the market around the February period. So we had multiples. Now we can talk a bit about the messiness of the closing Mayu since the property has been sold. Do we want to chat a bit about that? Which one do you want to talk about, Elliot or Linwood? I think Elliot is the main one. Yeah, Elliot, that one was uh that was interesting. We bought that with the joint venture partner. Um, that one was a duplex that we bought for what was it, 210 or something like that, right? 210. And 210 there's an in-law suite as well. Yeah, and we 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 made the in-law suite in there. We didn't know any better guys, so don't give a shit. We didn't yeah. know like <laughs> we're cheapskates back then. We didn't think of legalizing. Um, so we spent, what was it? Like, I think like 50 grand on renovations. And then immediately after like refinancing in like February, it was worth like somewhere in the like low fours, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So it's a good bump there. We got all the money out plus I think 30 grand. So that was all good. And then, uh, we, we basically had water issues on that property constantly, right? Like the basement, the sewer backed up. And then we, we didn't know if the water was coming from the sewage or from the exterior or whatever it was. So we tried a whole bunch of different things. Some pumps were in, put in there, um, weeping tiles, I believe at a point two. And then we just kept working it backwards. And then eventually it was a P trap in the front yard. So we ended up replacing that. And then as a result, the main floor tenant got pissed off because it was like the house smelled like shit, obviously. Right. Um, so main floor tenants brought us out to the city, right? So the city wanted access to the property. We weren't giving them access to the property. We just went, you know what? Forget this. We're just going to sell it. Right. Mind we say that this was happening after the property was sold and it was until like we, we wanted this to close. Right. And all of this was happening probably a week or two before closing. So, so the city was on our ass before we had even listed it though. And then they had a open plumbing permit that we, that we opened right on our own, where I think it was a sump pub, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure exactly what it was for, um, but it wasn't closed. So uh, about a week before closing, uh, we, we called the city and we're like, Hey, like we need to close this thing out. Like, what do you need from us to close it out? And they're like, Oh, we need access to the basement. Right. And we're like, Brad, we're not giving you access to the basement. <laughs> like, we're not. Cause then we know that's going to turn into a work order. We didn't say that, but we were like, yeah, we're not giving you access to the basement. Like what else can we do to close this out? Um, and the city was like, look, like we know like the city basically gave our property manager entire like spiel on like, Oh, like we know there's an illegal like basement unit in there. Like we want to get access to it as a property manager. You should have like the best interest of like your residents in mind and like all this kind of stuff. And ultimately we never gave them access to the basement, but they opened a work order on us anyways. Right. And that was like two days, I think before closing. So then we ended up giving the buyers, I think it was a five or 10 K discount on closing credit on closing just to get the thing done. Cause I was just like, guys, like this is all super minor. Like uh, the buyers were actually okay with like ripping out the basement unit. I was just like, okay. I was just confused by the entire thing. But I was like, all right, if you guys want 10 grand off just to get this done and move forward, we'll do that. Surprisingly, none of our other sales were, were that clean either. Austin, I think, I think you and I are just terrible about selling properties at this point. Um, three, uh, our, our Linwood ones, uh, one of them, we gave another couple thousand credit, I think on closing both of them, I think we ended up, or, or one of them had a $10,000 hold back for a key that we never gave. So, so we just got that back recently, but you know what? I'm happy to be done with those. Um, this is probably the time, right. To be like cleaning up your portfolio. Right. And by no means are me and Austin just like mass exiting real estate or something like that. No, like we love real estate, but, um, as you scale up your portfolio, there's going to be assets that don't perform or aren't optimized. Right. And this is like in a boom market is exactly when you want to sell off some of those properties. Exactly. And a lot of the time when you refinance these properties, they start to make very little sense from a cash flow perspective, having one or two like neutral cash flow items is okay in a grander scheme of a bigger portfolio. But when you have multiple neutral cash flow negative, 
properties in a portfolio, then that's when that becomes an issue. So we're just cognizant of that trading up property. So we sell this and then we're moving on to bigger and better things um, or entering different markets. Uh, yeah, I thought that would be interesting to chat about. Uh, none of our closings have went particularly smooth. It's kept <laughs> us busy. I'm going through a refinance April 4th. So I finished putting the appraisal package together, sent it over to the appraiser. We're using the same appraiser that we used for our six unit, um, which they gave us a pretty favorable appraisal for. We have pretty good rapport with them and I've used this appraiser multiple times. So I think that we're expecting something decent. And actually there's a recent comparable that sold. It was a duplex. It sold for 405 K this is in Warren, which is about 45 minutes from Sudbury in the middle of nowhere, a population of like 2000 or maybe less than 2000 people, a duplex sold for over 400 K there. That's recently. crazy. <laughs> yeah. So we're using that as uh as a benchmark for eight unit thing that if that sold for 200 K over 200 K unit, ours should be at least worth hundred K unit renovated and the unrated renovated units are 130, 140 K unit. Right. So that's kind of what we benchmark for the comms. And then we use the income approach. So hopefully looking for an appraisal somewhere around the range of 900,000, uh, it'd be a full burr and no money in the deal. So that'd be fantastic. I'm not really looking at doing deals anymore without any sort of skin in the game or any sort of money in. I just want to be more careful. Right? I want to have, I, I don't want to over leverage. Um, we saw that news that happened with Epic Alliance without going too deep into it. But uh, obviously we don't want to get caught in a similar situation. So it's just the realization of, of, of being a bit more careful with kind of the next move and, and taking out a ton of debt. I guess in their case, they were taking out debt to pay other debt, but yeah, I, I just don't want to be in a position where I felt like I could have prevented it, but I was being a bit too greedy or optimistic with the market. Yeah, I was just in a situation actually where for our New Brunswick projects, we we raised private capital, right? Um, and our refinance is taking a little bit too long. I always like think about it as if you guys are going to raise private capital for yourselves, just make sure you have like exit A, B, C, and D, right? If your only exit is this refinance happening exactly on time, like refinances can get delayed. Like my refinance has now been going on back and forth for like two months, right? It should have been funded in like late February. And now we're, well, we're basically in April and the money's still on the bank account, right? So I ended up having to just pay back one of my private lenders from my own capital. And it's like, if you guys are going to take on private capital, just make sure you have multiple strategies to pay people back. Because the last thing you want to do is be stuck in a situation where you got to raise even more expensive money to pay back your cheaper money. And you just kind of keep spiraling down and down and down. Oh yeah, exactly. And on that note, we guess to be transparent, we had one of our deals where we extended the promissory note because the appraisal was taking longer and the refi cash still didn't hit the bank. So I just paid the private lender out with his interest with, with our own capital as well. Right. It's yeah, not like right. we didn't have the capital. It's ideally you want everything to align up such that the refi funds are used to pay out the private capital. Yeah. But uh, if your private lender needs the money, you shouldn't be the one saying, no, like wait another month or two. If they need it, they need it, right? Like yeah. just be respectful of that relationship. So yeah. then we ended up paying them out. Um, and our refi is closing hopefully by tomorrow. Jesus Christ, I hope by tomorrow. But um, yeah, <laughs> just uh, good good tidbits for the audience out there. Anyways, we're going to have Sarah Edder on the podcast today. But before we get into that, quick update on the reviews. Right now we're at 109 reviews. So not where we want to be, but that's okay. It's still growing by one review every podcast episode. So I guess in episode 200, we'll have 200 reviews. So we got a five-star review from Parm. Thank you for the review, Parm. She said, this is the best real estate investing podcast. Every time I listen to a podcast, I learn something new and take away so much value. There's a ton of knowledge to be gained from every guest. Mayu and Austin are down to earth and openly share their ups and downs. It makes the journey less intimidating. Also love the variety of topics for each podcast, depending on the guests they have on. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate that, Parm. If you want us to read your review out loud, go ahead and leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Anyways, in today's episode, as I mentioned earlier, we have Sarah Etter. She's a fantastic real estate investor, super inspirational, began her journey less than four years ago and scaled up to over, I believe it's well over 100 properties with joint venture partners. We get all into the nuts and bolts of breaking into real estate by raising capital and JVing with people. And we get into the systems and some of the headaches that go into JVs and how to best mitigate those uh, sort of risk and, and overworking yourself with joint venture partners. And then we dig down into Sarah's journey into selling off some of her JVs and moving straight into multifamily property. So this is gonna be an amazing episode. If you're a newer investor, not a lot of capital, 
trying to figure out a way to break into real estate investing, this is a must listen to episode. So we're going to jump into it right now. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Sarah. Sarah Adder, because we had another Sarah in a previous episode, so it's good to specify. <laughs> How's everything going, Sarah? Going great. Thanks so much for having me on today. For sure. We followed your journey quite a bit, so we know a good amount about yourself. You're pretty public on social media as well. But uh, you know, for everyone that maybe doesn't know you, uh, why don't you give us a quick background on yourself and, and how you got started in real estate and what you're up to today? Yeah, for sure. So uh, I've been in the real estate space for only four years, so not too, too long, but uh, we've done a lot of cool stuff. So I've been a full-time real estate investor for about three and a half years. So quit very, very early into my whole real estate journey. It's a bit of a risk, but it paid off. Um, I first got started in like the small multi-family uh, space doing furs. Um, We've obviously done a lot of stuff since then. Um, but yeah, that's kind of an overview of my my journey yeah so where are you right now just to put things into perspective for people yeah. who are listening because i think you kind of undersold yourself in where you stand right now you're like over i think it was like over 250 units or the like 300 units plus right if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah we're close to like 250 uh multifamily units at this point um we've graduated into some larger stuff now um, i'm sure like a lot of investors talk about this the whole like efficiencies and economies of scale so we're now focusing mainly on buildings like 15 20 units plus larger development projects just things worth kind of more of like a bigger bang for our our time um but yeah we've done quite a few things we do like 15 to 20 flips per year, about 20 to 25 burrs when I was still doing my smaller like JV uh, side of the portfolio. And we're getting into the Airbnb space as well. Awesome. Wow. That's okay. That's quite the journey. So you say you got started four or five years ago? When did you say you got started? Four, four yeah, years ago. Four wow. Years. Okay. That's, that's super fast. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I thought our progress is going to, wow. Okay. Um, all right. So for anyone that's looking to get started now, like, like what was the journey when you first got started at this, right? So from um, what got you into real estate? What did you start off doing? And what, you know, how did you fund it as well? Right. Cause I'm sure you weren't kind of doing partnerships right off the gate. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was, it was tricky. Like when I first got into real estate, um, I feel like you guys, like you're so young and like, you've done so many cool things Like you knew, like you wanted to do all this stuff, like with real estate to like get ahead. I didn't get started till I was like closer to 30. Uh, and I had never really had an interest in real estate to be perfectly honest. I feel like I was just kind of like, in the right place at the right time. And then it just made sense. Like I went to business school and when I started to see like what these like full-time investors were doing, I was like, Whoa, I got to get on this train. I, up until then, I didn't even know a full-time investor was a thing. And you know, when I first started, like, I know like four years ago, wasn't that long, but I feel like now, like when I was younger and in my twenties, there weren't podcasts like this. We weren't talking about financial freedom. I feel like it's such a cool space now. Like we are so much more open about entrepreneurship. Um, I found for me, when I came out of university, it was like, go get a job, go get your MBA, just, you know, follow the white picket, you know, line of, of what you're supposed to do. So I had been kind of like bouncing around different like corporate jobs, really just feeling like unfulfilled. And finally, I came into a position, um, I was running a property management company and it just so happened it was property management. Like I didn't do it on purpose. It was just like, okay, it was a good job, decent pay, whatever. But I found that I really didn't like the tenant aspect of things, but I liked what the owners of the buildings were doing. Cause I got to see their numbers and their rents coming in. And I thought, Whoa, like how do I get to be those guys? And then I found out that a lot of them weren't multi-millionaires, at least to start they were like truck drivers and like just average everyday people. So that really got me thinking like, what's different? Like, what are they doing to get into this? Like, it's so interesting. So I started to explore um, some networking groups. I, I was a member of like Rain and Keyspire and just, you know, doing a little bit of education that really, really opened my eyes. Um, but I was still like struggling a bit. Like I did not have any money. I had really bad debt, not good credit. So I actually started doing joint ventures right out of the gate, which I know was super rare. Um, but I was just determined. Um, I knew the time it was going to take me to save up money to get into my first property. I was like, I ain't got time for that. Like I have dreams, I have goals, like let's just get <laughs> going on this. So instead I took a bunch of sales training. So I learned how to like 
pitch myself, promote myself. I took some marketing classes to like brush up on my social media skills. So I attacked like that element of my company first and like tried to build like a reputation for myself. And I hosted like these, like, I, like I started a YouTube channel and, and things like that. While of course, educating myself on like the market. And for me, I thought it made the most sense to do small burrs, like duplexes and triplexes. Cause I was like, you know what? That offers a really good return for my JV since we're splitting the cash flow like 50, 50 and gives us enough returns to kind of like split down the middle. And I knew it was like a really enticing, um, like avenue to get into where my investors probably don't have the time to manage three or four tenants or manage construction on like a distressed property. So that's kind of how I like slid into my first like few properties. So, okay. The first question I have there is you really started off with joint ventures, um, which it's kind of unorthodox, right? Like, because (laughs) I think it's kind of, you know, the story of what comes first, like the chicken or the egg. Um, yeah. Joint venture partners want people with experience. People with experience usually have a lot of joint venture partners, right? So yeah. um, how do you go, how do you go about attracting these joint venture partners? How'd you find them? Um, what did you do differently? And I think that will relate to like a lot of our listeners as well, right? Absolutely. And I get this question a lot. So like, it's so valid, right? People think that they have to really like earn their stripes and have a sizable portfolio, like before they can do JVs. Now, the caveat to that is what I tell people is like, it's not that you need a sizable portfolio, but you still need the education. So just because like I hadn't done a lot of deals on my own, doesn't mean that I wasn't educating myself very, very seriously, because I looked at this as like, okay, if I'm going to do this out of the gate, no credibility, no previous portfolio to show them, I better be like 10 steps ahead of these JVs in terms of my market knowledge, my power team that I'm putting together, my understanding of like, quotes and rents and the tenant rules and all this stuff. So I took real estate as seriously as I took like a university class, like every weekend I was like taking seminars and watching videos and like going out in the market and putting in offers for practice and like, like all that kind of stuff. Like I took my education component really, really seriously. And I think that really stepped me up a little bit in the eyes of a lot of my potential JVs. Because that was always the first question. They were like, well, you know, you don't have a lot of experience. And I'm like, okay, but, you know, here's all the stuff I know and here's what I've done and here's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they were like, whoa, okay, like she really does know what she's doing. Maybe not in a practical sense yet, but like she's clearly done her homework. And then what I did was I made sure I had people that were like 20 times more experienced than me on my power team the best realtors, the best contractors, the best lawyers. So that when I was like, I don't know what to do. Like this is my first time buying a duplex. They were right there with me to make sure like I wasn't screwing up. And I think gave my JVs more confidence as well. And then I just started like, uh, like I said, just promoting myself a lot on social media. I started off in Brentford. So I decided to niche myself to give myself a little more of like an edge on the competition. So I focused exclusively on Brantford to start. And I just become like the little Brantford guru. So I used to start this like YouTube channel with these videos and I did Instagram stories and, you know, just sharing like market stats on Brantford and rents and, you know, just started drumming up like off-market deals. That was huge. You know, once I started to be able to find off-market properties, I became, I think, like even more valuable in the eyes of my potential JVs. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of important things to break down there. So even though you didn't necessarily have the practical experience, you knew just as much or even more than some seasoned investors. I can name a ton of investors who know almost nothing about property management. Yeah. But you had that background. So you could probably answer those questions uh, much more thoroughly than another <laughs> investor. On top of that, like off-market deals, I can't, like there's only a limited amount of JV partners I could probably count who actually seek yeah. their own off-market deals. Yeah. instead of paying like 50, 60, 70 K time and fees to people like me. Um, right. but yeah, no, it, it's definitely a huge bonus, a huge value add there. Um, I'm just curious with your first couple of JVs, did you give any concessions or was it straight up typical 50, 50 split cash flow? They're bringing down all the capital, um, et cetera. Yeah. You know what? Um, I took advice from like a mentor in the beginning who was like helping with my JVs and they kind of taught me like, not to give concessions. Like they were like, you know what, just because you're new or whatever, like, does it make your time any less valuable? And so I always like took that to heart where I was like, you know what, like I have spent 
so many hours and my own money to educate myself. And like every weekend I was like feet on the street, door knocking. I used to hand out my flyers by hand, you know, like in Brantford before I got smarter and like outsourced that. Um, but no, like, like in the beginning it's been 50, 50 and I've never given concessions ever since. Like sometimes depending on very, very rare circumstances where there's a VTB involved or like they're putting in less or I'm putting in less. I have adjusted like the uh, structure, but from day one, I've always been very confident to just pitch myself on 50, 50. And I think like that level of belief in yourself and that level of confidence carries you through. Like you really have to believe in your own value as a working JV. Cause it's really easy to feel beat down by people that are like, well, we're giving you all the money. Why should I give you more? Like, why should I have to pay you? And it's not like that at all. In fact, I feel like they're giving you the easiest part of the equation. Like, yes, they had to work hard for their capital, but at the same time, like who's answering those phone calls at 11 o'clock at night? Who's driving to the property every week? Who's checking in on the construction? Who's, you know, having to take care of this property for the next like five to 10 years, right? Like that's on us. So we deserve like a fair cut, even if it's right from the get-go. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think part of it, like capital partners always kind of perceive their value to be very high and they're great. Like, you know, equally need them as well as what, right. But ultimately what they're providing is an interest-free loan for whatever period of time yeah, they right. the birds complete. Right. Um, yeah. and there's huge value in the deal, which it sounds like you really came up with like these really good deals, right. Whether it was sourced yeah. off market or even on market. Um, and as long as you bring a good deal, the money is available and it's out there. Right. Uh, that's great. So, so when did you start to do the flips? And so, cause you started four years ago, uh, I guess before we get into the flips, what was the, what was the rate of growth for you? Like at what pace were you scaling? Cause to go from zero to almost 300, um, in a matter of four years, I'm assuming it's not 80 a year, right? It's kind of exponential. I'm assuming. Right. So how, how did the growth happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's so funny. And I'm sure like you guys can attest to this, that in the beginning, like you just don't know what's possible. So you kind of undersell yourself. So like for my first year, I was like, oh, if I could do like three to five deals my first year, I'll be so happy. And then I did five and I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. So like, let's do 10. And I hear that from a lot of investors that reach out to me. They're like, can I do 10 in a year? And I'm like, you start at 10 per year. Like, I feel like that's like the baseline. Once you have your systems in place, 10 is nothing. And once I had done five, I think the next year I did like 10 and maybe like a couple more, like a couple of wholesales or something. And then from there, it was like 25, 30 plus. Like, I feel like the, the 10 level, once you get there, you're, you're good to go. And now we're doing like maybe fewer like buildings per year, but probably like triple the number of doors. Cause it really is just like this rapid exponential thing that happens. Hmm. So, so speaking of systems, obviously when you scale, you need some sort of systems in place. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people who blow up their portfolio, but they don't invest in the right infrastructure or people to help them along the way. So how is that process like for you and what kind of uh, people do you have on your team to help you out? Yeah, it's so funny because I feel like that's uh, like a question where like we all like we all make mistakes in this arena when we first start growing. Like, I feel like we get like almost like overconfident or overzealous about our growth. And then like, if you don't have the systems in place, it will crash you to a halt so fast. And then you're like, oh man, like I should have invested in like better like staff or like more like systems before I just kept accelerating growth. And I would say like, looking back, I wish I had invested sooner. Um, but I was like, so anxious to just keep all the capital and mm -hmm. just continue to reinvest in properties. I neglected delegation. Um, and so it maybe not like too late. I don't think it's ever too late, but I feel like I could have grown even like faster had I like noticed these deficiencies in my systems earlier on. So I tried to just do like way too much. Cause I feel like I was, that's how I was taught. Um, and, and that's, I think an important point to realize too, is like everybody's company and business structure is like very different and you can't just replicate somebody else's model and expect it to go perfectly. Like you have different needs, you have different markets and, and things like that. So I was always taught like, no, like do your own property management in-house, like start your own property management company, do all your GCing and your own you know stuff in-house. 
And like, I can tell you, it was the worst decision ever. It slowed me down. I was building too many teams at once. I was responsible for like so many different things. People think like, oh, you have a property management company in house, but who's still making all the judgment calls when it comes to a repair or when it comes to a tenant selection or something like that. So about two years ago, I decided to delegate everything. I only hire external GCs now. I hire a third-party property management company, which is very integrated into my business. I mean, they manage over 200 doors of my portfolio. So they're almost like a part of my team, but they have their own billing systems, their own things. I just get invoiced every month and just pay them for their time, which is incredible. Um, And then in the past year and a half, we focused heavily on building our internal team. So we now have... um, a full uh, kind of like an office manager. I have an executive assistant. I have a property administrator. I have a project manager. Um, and now we're looking at even hiring sub levels, like just a couple extra admins below that, because you don't realize how quickly like the day-to-day can really, really catch up with you. Even with your admins, like they can drown like instantly. Like you think you don't have enough work for them. And then before you know it, they're working like 60 hour weeks. So yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think myself and Austin are guilty of exactly what you said, right? Where you just focus on like the next deal, just finding the next deal, just burning it, getting the money up, just keep finding it. And then in the back end, it's kind of like, ah, you just kind of get by. Right. Um, so that, that caused us, that caused me to pause last year for like the last six months. I just went, you know what? I need to like clean up house. Like this is like a mess. Right. Absolutely. Um, like sell off properties that aren't performing, like re- reposition the ones that are get the books in order, all that kind of stuff. But I'm curious yeah. on the problem, like pinpointing one thing there. So the, the property manager, because um, you're using an in-house property management, but if I'm not mistaken, you guys invest in a couple of different areas, right? You're not only in Bradford anymore, right? So how does the, how does the in-house property management, and I know you said you use external GC, so I guess that is very like city specific, right? But how does in-house property management work there? The external, yeah, external, external property management. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the way we did it is I still stick to a fairly geographic region. So like I only do the golden horseshoe. So like Brantford's like my cutoff out here. And then I only invest like kind of East or South ish, like down into like Niagara region. So all my properties are within like an hour of one another. Wow. So my property management company, they're centrally located in Brantford. So what we did is when I started to expand into Niagara, we had that conversation. I said, look, like I would love for you guys to kind of take over. If I can guarantee you a certain number of doors, mm. can we work on? So, you know, it was kind of cool. And, and I really advocate this, like, you know, starting out with grassroots companies is really cool because I help their business grow. You know, they've helped me grow. And like, so we're kind of like moving in lockstep with like our companies because they now have a dedicated Niagara force where like they didn't have one before specifically just because of the number of doors mm. I had. And now they have extra like side clients that they see out in Niagara. So like it really worked in like a really symbiotic way. But that's kind of what I recommend. Like I don't often like to just invest and chase deals. I find a lot more efficiency. Like if I can keep my properties within one to two hours of one another, I can use the same GCs, the same handyman, the same suppliers, the same property management company, and just a lot less headaches for me, a lot less people to deal with. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. So right now I'm, uh, and Mayu does this as well. We have a good contractor. Yeah. Uh, each have our own respective team and we will send them over four hours away just because <laughs> we trust them and we just want to use them. And if they were not yeah. on our side, I don't think I'd invest in those areas. Like having the key team absolutely. members is so crucial in investing. So I was just curious. So when you started off, you did a couple of JVs, smaller multis. When did you transition into bigger things and what was that thought process like? And sorry, one more thing to end that part off is also what is the JV structure for the bigger project? Is it the same as before? Just people have to bring more money? That's a great question. So it had always been on my radar to do big buildings. Like I think when I first started investing in real estate, I saw my smaller multis and my JVs as kind of like a means to an end. Um, I love all you JVs if you're listening, by the way. You're so awesome to me. Um, But it was always meant to be like a stepping stone. Like we're playing a giant game of Monopoly, collect all the little houses, trade them up and buy the hotels, right? So it was always something I was like constantly working towards. I think I just needed to like build up the team, build up the capital. And also for myself personally, like I always intended that like 
I wanted to own my apartment buildings. I didn't really want to use the JV model once I got to that level. So I need to build up, you know, because once I quit my corporate job, as you guys, I'm sure going through too, it's like, you know, now I can't qualify and I need to build up assets and net worth in order to qualify for commercial mortgages. So it was all kind of like in this master kind of scheme that I had going on. Um, and part of that too, because I know you mentioned flips before, that was something that I had never wanted to do. Like I've never dreamed about managing flips. I actually really don't like that component of my business. I think it's so like hectic, but I needed it when I first quit my job because I had like very little income coming in from my burrs. As you guys probably can attest, a duplex doesn't cash all that much in Ontario. Like you need a lot of duplexes to replace a corporate income. So I started to get into this, the flip space kind of on the side, like part-time just to make sure I had kind of like for myself, a steady recurring um, bit of capital coming in. And so once I did that for a couple of years, I was like, you know what? I feel like I could keep going in the small burst space, but I lost my mojo for it. I just was like, it's stressful. I feel like I'm putting so much work and so much money. And then it was COVID and prices started going up and there was contractor delays and contractor prices started going up and these smaller burrs stopped making sense. And I thought, well, what am I waiting for? Got all these, you know, projects now. I've done all these GVs. I have years worth of net income and net worth now. It kind of just almost like pushed me to the next level, like to really make me reevaluate and say, okay, it's time to move on. So the past, I'd say year and a half, we really, really started to like dig into like the um, apartment building space with the intention that um, we do still take on equity partners, but more or less our apartment buildings are set up almost like long-term loans. So like we have the equity partners come on, we like stabilize the building, we pay them out a share or and a cut of the cash flow and profits. And then eventually uh, we we're doing kind of whole, the whole like flip to ourselves model um, at the end of what those five, six, seven years, we'll, you know, kind of be the sole owners because we go on title and we are the ones guaranteeing the mortgage. So that's kind of how we plan on maintaining a bit more like control of the commercial aspect of our portfolio. So are you doing like a option to buy kind of like with these joint ventures? Like, are you entering in from day one saying that like, Hey, like we have the right to buy you out at like year five or something like that. And everyone's kind of on board with that. Or is it more so uh, just by retaining title at any point, whenever equity partners want to get bought out, which at some point, like most people either want to sell or, or get bought out. Is that just, is it kind of just an organic plan like that? It's more organic. Um, my commercial lawyers like highly recommended that we leave it as flexible as possible because like everything and anything can change. Like who knew what was going to happen the past like two years of our lives, right? And it's like you know a lot of these buildings are like a five to six year timeline. Who's to say what's going to happen at the end of that? Maybe property values go down. Maybe something happens to the commercial market, and we actually need to retain equity partners. So I think we kind of leave it like open ended, where it's like after a certain time period, we can say, okay, like we're, you know, opting to buy you guys out as like, here's our offer. Um, and then at the same time, when we hit the deadline of our contract, they can be like, okay, you know, all of them can basically cash out at that point, therefore kind of forcing us into a refi, which is pretty much like what we wanted to do in the first place, but it gives us like more flexibility in case something does not go according to plan. That was pretty jam-packed. I want to understand then with like 200 to 300 units, um, yeah. I, I know you've now outsourced property management. You've got the general contracting kind of outsourced as well. Um, what does the internal team look like to manage that, that many people? Cause I know, so the project manager, I guess is more so for the flips or are they on the rentals as well? They're on the rentals as well for like large maintenance projects, like things that not just like a leaking faucet, but like a, Oh, like, our entire roof is leaking and now there's like a foundation problem. And now we have to get in like external because we had a lot of that with this weather going on. So like he will also oversee like any type of like large scale reno, whether that's on the rental or flip side. Um, mind you, he doesn't have to do much on the flip side because my GCs pretty much run, run that mm -hmm. show for the most part. But um, yeah, he just kind of helps us stay on top of quotes and contractors and all that kind of stuff. Because yeah. I'd imagine when you're doing that much volume in projects and if you were handling all of those phone calls, you would just be on the phone all day just for that. Story in my life <laughs> up until yeah. a year ago, it was horrible. 
Like even just trying to remember, oops, I need a quote for this. Like, oh, did we sign off on that? Oh, did my GV send in the deposit for this renovation project? Um, and then now I have an executive assistant who's stepping into more of a managerial role where she's now staying on top of um, the project manager. She stays on top of, I have a, what I call a property administrator. Um, she strictly just deals with the operations component of the property. So she makes sure that utilities are getting paid, that all the like pre-authorized payments are set up. If there's like, you know, things coming in, like requests, because like my property managers, I try not to put that stuff on top of them because I want them just dealing with the tenants and maintenance requests. So I needed an admin on top of that for all the other little like day-to-day operations stuff. Um, and then I just hired my executive assistant about six months ago because I realized even though I had this administrator and even though I had this guy, I still had to keep on top of them. So now I have Chelsea, who's my executive assistant. Now her job is basically we use um, a lot of different like task software. And she's like, this is the deadline. Do you have this quote? Do you have that? And she kind of makes sure that they're staying on top of their to-do list, more or less. She's like a giant to-do list like checker, more or less, but it's an incredible position. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah, really yeah. exactly what I need in my life. <laughs> <laughs> It'll improve your life like you would not believe. I can go away for an afternoon and just know that someone's there. Mo- like she monitors my email inbox response to urgent inquiries will text me if something needs to be addressed right away. Otherwise she's there to kind of respond and and pass things off to the right team members. That I feel is a very underrated role that we don't talk about enough is having uh, like a task handler, like a mini you basically, that's just, you know, delegating. Yeah, essentially, because one of the things that I find takes a lot of time as a business owner is making sure that people are actually uh, following their deadlines, following the tasks (laughs) they're supposed to do. And you might forget, like things slip by your head because you're always putting out fires and dealing with bigger things. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's good to have that position to make sure everyone's actually doing the job properly and mm-hmm. being on them if they're not. Um, one thing I was curious on is, is that from that transition from, I guess, smaller multis to bigger projects, mm-hmm. how have you noticed the JV avatar change? Because that's something that a lot of people mm-hmm. talk about is like, who's your ideal joint venture avatar? Is it the same people you're reaching out to or is it much different now? Is hugely different for two reasons. One being that you have to make sure that you're playing by local securities laws too, right? So um, now all of a sudden we're dealing with accredited investors, which means they actually either have to have um, $500,000 in liquid funds, $5 million in net assets. You're not an average player if you are an actual like legitimate accredited investor. And my recommendation is that you follow the rules. Once you start to get up to that level, you will come under more scrutiny. You really do have to be careful when you're buying buildings worth millions and millions of dollars that you start to be a little more cautious about how shareholders agreements are set up and how financing works. Like you're not going to fly under the radar. You might be able to do with like a duplex or something. So, you know, one, you're now dealing with accredited investors, which already puts you up a huge echelon. Uh, But two, it's also like, the attitude of like the investors. I don't want someone bringing in 50 or $60,000 into these deals. I want a person who can come in and fund like half my down payment. So now I have fewer investors to deal with. Um, I don't want to have, you know, 10, 15 people on like a 20 unit apartment. Ideally you want three, maybe four investors max, because the more uh, investors you have on projects like this, there's just more potential for misunderstandings and, you know, issues. So, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I would imagine because a lot of residential JV partners, the ideal is the birth, right? Have the majority of their money pulled out. But when you're dealing with these bigger players, they're looking to diversify because they have a ton of money in different yeah. investments. And right. it's not like they need all of their money out. It's like, okay, like this is a diversification play into real estate. Yeah, exactly. Like they're okay to just park 500 grand somewhere and just let it sit. Like it's a different profile. Like sometimes I have people that are like, well, I can only pull hundred K off my HELOC and I need it back in a year because I'm paying all this interest. Well, yeah, you're probably going to want to put them in a duplex conversion or a triplex conversion or something, but yeah, you exactly like what you're saying. You want more like legacy wealth, older people that are looking for like long-term because I'm like, I can't guarantee your money back for five to six years. So you better be okay. Parking this amount of 
capital for that length of, of time. So definitely a different level of individual. Now, how does your strategy change the market to these individuals? Because Instagram, YouTube is probably not going to cut it anymore. Yeah. Uh, it really then comes down to a lot more networking. Um, I haven't been able to do a lot of it like in person. Um, but I've spoken to my colleagues that are, you know, even ahead and above where I am doing hundred unit apartment buildings. And they go to a lot of like, um, galas, entrepreneurial, like, uh, meetups. You kind of got to have like the who's who list of where you need to, to be at. Um, you know, I I've even heard of people doing like yacht parties and you know, like lawyers, doctors, just trying to get into those types of circles. Um, you want people who have a trust fund or hugely successful, like in their given profession. And like you said, you can find them on social media, but they're probably not going to reach out to you. They want almost like a reference that, you know, someone who knows someone and you got into the circle that way. Now, Luckily, um, and this will probably happen for a lot of people, the more you invest, the more you're introduced to different people. I have quite a good reputation now, so it's a little easier to get into doors. Maybe three years ago, I would have been knocking for, for days. Let's just put it that way. Whereas now, you know, it's like, oh, she knows this person who knows that person. And she's got a substantial portfolio on her own. Like, sure, you can come into the, the circle sort of thing, but it definitely becomes a little more personal wheeling and dealing than, than just social media. Yeah. And I guess the more joint venture partners you have as well, like you, you kind of level up from their referrals to other people that they know who then have more capital and so on. I think yeah. money people deal stuff down, you basically kind of talks about the same thing. Right. Um, yeah. So that's good. So one thing I want to ask you is, so the strategies that work when you're buying single families to try price conversions and, and so on, um, probably isn't what you're doing today. Right. So, and I know the multifamily space in today's world is, absolutely like crazy. Like it, it's crazy. And obviously CMHC isn't really helping with that, but, um, you know, what would you recommend from if someone's looking to, you know, get into maybe not the scale that you're doing, like, I think you're doing 15 yeah. to 20 units, but even if they're looking to do, you know, under 10 units over four, still kind of commercial, but the smaller commercials, um, did you just skip that step and jump right into the bigger buildings or like, what, what would you recommend for them? Um, funny enough, like my second deal ever was a five plex. I own a couple of like five and six units. And then I literally just jump like straight into like 17. I found there's not much of like a wiggle room. Like if you can find a 12 plex, great. But I feel like it's almost easier to get into bigger stuff. If that makes sense. Like, I don't think there's much difference. Like if you're already doing four plexes for you to go to a 10 or a 15, it's not that much different. Um, so what I actually am recommending to like a lot of people right now though, is like to more or less like skip the two to four space. I feel like that's like a really, really tricky space to be in right now, because like, if you're looking at Hamilton, for example, you're looking at like 1.2, $1.4 million, it doesn't cash flow, And then you have to deal with like, you know, low paying tenants and, you know, lots of challenges with that. And you're not going to find them vacant, unfortunately. And we're finding just the cash flow, even on refi, isn't that great. You can only rent a one, two bed for so much money in like an apartment, right? I'm encouraging people like, think about the six to 10 space. It's a little less competitive. Um, It's becoming a little hotter for sure, but it's way less competitive than the duplex, triplex space because your mom and pop, you know, investors, they're looking for the duplexes, the turnkey, the easy stuff. The minute you start getting into like commercial with like boiler systems and lots of mechanicals, they're going to be like, ah, this is too much. Like I don't need to go this deep. So like for like an eight flex or something like that, like people get so scared. It's so easy. It's almost better. You've got everything under one roof, all of your tenants, you've got all the mechanicals, all the hydrometers are split. The heating is all split. Beautiful, nice building to manage. If you can figure out the financing component, and just feel confident and just bridge maybe some of those educational gaps, you'll probably do better in that than even trying to get, you know, like a bungalow conversion on Hamilton mountain. It'll cost you about the same. <laughs> That's a really good thought, actually. <laughs> yeah. Was, was, there was kind of this pause because me and Austin were both just kind of taking it in and deciphering it. So. <laughs> Especially if you're open to going up to smaller markets too, right? Like, you know, Kirkland Lake is doing well, Cornwall, some of these more like, I'll call them fringe markets or like, like emerging markets, you know, you're buying at less than a hundred K a door. So 
why do a duplex when you can probably buy something six, seven, eight for like the same price you could buy a fourplex for, you know, in Hamilton or Brantford? It makes so much more sense from a cash flow perspective too. Then do you ever worry about like the economic risk of going to like these like really smaller like cities, like especially like I've I've got a property in Kirkland like that I got, you know, from these from these guys from Austin and them, but um it's a gold mining town, right? And, and you know, you yeah. never really know, right? So there's definitely, you know, more risk as well on, on that side. I'm just wondering about, you know, how you feel about that. So I'm so glad you brought that up because um, so I'm originally born and raised, if you can believe it. Sioux St. Marie. So if anyone knows and can give advice about these Northern towns, it's me. Um, yeah, you know, as a kid, I grew up during the boom and bust kind of overflow from the eighties. So like I saw when half the town was unemployed, I saw, you know, a lot of struggle when like the steel mills were running and then not running and then laying people off. And it is very stressful and it does have a direct impact on the housing market because there's nothing around to really like absorb the impact of that. Right. So I do think there is a huge risk. And what I basically tell people is like, if you can get into those types of buildings with your discretionary capital, like don't go and put all your eggs in one basket in Kirkland Lake. Like don't go drop like three, four, 500 K of your like hard earned money. If you can find stuff with BTB, low money down, you can get a little refine. It's cash flowing. Okay. I almost look, cause I invest a little bit in Sault Ste. Marie which took me years, by the way, I only started doing that last year. I was convinced because I thought, you know what, this is my overflow money. Like I'm putting 50, 60,000 down for like down payments. I'm getting VTBs and vacant possession of like multiplexes and stuff. I was like, it's almost so low risk that I asked myself, like, if I had to sell this for break even in five years, like, would I be okay with that? Like, this is kind of just like a sunk cost. And my answer was, yeah, because 75 to 80% of my portfolio is in the GTA where I know there's strong appreciation. I know there's strong performance, maybe 10% or less of my portfolio is up North. And in the meantime, I'm cash flowing like crazy. I'll probably pay back my down payment in a few years and then it won't really matter. Gotcha. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense. I've, I've been looking at St. Marie sent out marketing there. And like, I have houses on turnkey houses under contract now, given not the best area for like, 70k i was like oh my god like I it's crazy right just like from it. buy it and cash flow for two years if it's worth nothing after that i mean it kind of served its purpose right yeah exactly no but that, that's a very good thought because um a lot more newer investors and you probably see this era on the on, under the coaching side of things um are like they're pretty much tapped out of any market oh, nearby the gta so it's like where can you afford and a lot of the time, the only places you can afford are these like smaller, as you call it, the French markets. Because when I got started, Windsor was affordable. Yeah. I was getting houses at 130K and Windsor was still a big population, 200K plus yeah, people. But now it's like half a million for houses, <laughs> right? So like you can't, can't even afford there anymore. It's crazy. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it's so true. I guess that's also driving. So do you do out of province investing or are you say, I guess, no, you're staying primarily within Ontario and the Golden Horseshoe kind of area, right? For now, I think like I'm a big believer in staying in your lane until like it makes sense to diversify. So like I feel like I've done everything like with a purpose. Like I didn't just like jump into the sewer, like jump into Airbnb or jump into flips just because like I was like chasing shiny objects. It like all has to fit like that bigger picture. So like my flips, I didn't like want to want to, but I was like, I need cash to survive because my cash flow is not doing it for me and I need more capital to inject into the business. So that was like a calculated choice. And then to expand through like the golden horseshoe, it was because I felt like I had tapped Brantford out and I was getting so many new JV partners. I was like, Hey, like I have to start expanding my marketing efforts a bit to be able to keep up with, you know, demand from my, my money partners. And so yeah, like everything's been kind of like a step, a step, a step. And I think you can do that as long as you're not just chasing kind of the next hottest thing. I see that a little often people are like, Oh, let's just do Alberta. Let's just do out East without really thinking it through. Like, why do you want to invest out there? What about your power team? How is this going to fit into like the overall picture in your portfolio? When you ask people that they're like, Oh yeah. Okay. I really need to think closer about why I'm doing this. Um, we might invest and end up a little bit, um, in the state because I'm seeing a lot of opportunity there. But again, if I do it, I'll make sure like all my 
tease or cross, so to speak, before we just kind of go off out of, out of country, out of province. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right, Sarah. So I think that was, uh, that was a really good episode, at least for myself. I, I really enjoyed it. There was a lot of good, good kind of content there for, for us to kind of take back, but uh, usually at this point in the, the podcast, we like to ask, I guess, two questions, right? So for anyone that's just getting started in real estate, a new investor, imagine kind of zero, one, two, three properties, or even experienced investors as well. What's the biggest risk that you see in today's market? Um, I think the biggest risk, believe it or not, is people not going ahead with clarity on what they actually want to achieve in their portfolio. So a lot of great resources and awesome podcasts like this out there. And I think it's almost like information overwhelm sometimes. And I think people just get into real estate or investing in particular markets or strategies without actually thinking about whether it fits for them. And I think taking some time to really like evaluate your goals, what you need or want real estate to accomplish for you. And then, you know, sticking with like a niche and sticking with a particular strategy will help investors get just getting started, like accelerate that much further because you're not following somebody else's playbook. You're, you know, identifying weaknesses in the market. You're picking strategies that make sense for you. Um, and then that way you'll have more clarity moving forward. I feel like lately I'm just talking to a lot of investors that are so lost, just so confused about what they should be doing. Okay. Awesome. And the second question is where do you see yourself and your business like five years from now? Um, I'm hoping honestly, five years from now, I will be very, very hands off of my entire portfolio. Um, we plan on hiring probably like another like four to five team members in the next like one to two years. Hopefully uh, in five years, we're completely into the commercial space. Um, we really want to start to consider building now with these new uh, CMHC products that are coming out. We're looking into actually building like purpose built affordable housing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I hope we're at. It's just, I'm doing maybe three to four nice big buildings a year, some developments. I'm on the beach somewhere while my team kind of handles my portfolio and we're traveling the world and having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Really appreciate you jumping on today's podcast, Sarah. Uh, again, as Mayu was saying, this is a phenomenal episode. It's been crazy to see your growth and to just think mm -hmm. that you've only been doing it for four years. Yeah, yeah mind blown. <laughs> mind blown. <laughs> Something that's uh, I, I'm sure Mayu and I uh, hope to aspire to um, within the next couple of years in our real estate journey, just seeing what you're doing. Again, phenomenal. If people want to reach out to you, connect with you, learn more about your journey, how can they do so? Uh, you guys can check me out on Instagram and Facebook, same handle at Sarah Etter Invest. Awesome. And all of the links there will be down in the show notes below. Sarah, again, really appreciate you jumping on. If you guys enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support the podcast that helps great guests like Sarah out here. Until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.